will hear argument this morning in case number 19422, Collins versus Mnuchin, and the consolidated case. Mr. Mupan? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In the Third Amendment, FHFA, acting as conservator of Fannie and Freddie, renegotiated the enterprise's financial obligations to Treasury. By replacing the enterprise's multi-billion dollar dividend and fee obligations with a variable dividend tied to their net worth, the conservator eliminated any risk that a cycle could continue where the enterprise's obligations to Treasury would themselves cause draws from Treasury's capital commitment. The shareholder's statutory and constitutional challenges to the Third Amendment fail for many reasons, but there are three key defects that I'll try to address today. First, both claims are barred by the Recovery Act Succession Clause, which transfers to the conservator the authority to decide whether shareholders may bring derivative suits on behalf of the enterprises. The type of shareholder injury alleged here, that the corporation's assets have been unlawfully dissipated to a particular shareholder, is plainly derivative rather than direct. The shareholders have not cited even a single case to the contrary. Second, the statutory claim is barred by the Recovery Act Anti-Injunction Clause, which prevents courts from restraining exercises of the conservator's powers or functions. The conservator acted well within its authority in deciding that the renegotiation of the enterprise's financial obligations may have been appropriate to preserve and conserve Treasury's capital commitment. The shareholders cannot second-guess the wisdom or motives behind that business judgment. Third, the constitutional claim fails because President Obama had unrestricted power to remove and thus to supervise both of the officials who signed the Third Amendment. Treasury Secretary Geithner was, of course, removable at will, and so too was acting FHFA Director DeMarco. Thus, while the statutory restriction on the President's power to remove the FHFA Director is invalid, it had no prejudicial effect on the Third Amendment. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, Counsel, um, you say that the common stockholders' claims uh, can't survive because they're uh, derivative, really claims of the corporation, and, and then barred by the su- uh, succession clause. But it seems to me that they're a little different, uh, according to the claims anyway. Uh, their uh, stock value, their stock was completely wiped out uh, in a unique way compared to the other uh, holders of interests uh, in the enterprises. Uh, in other words, that this action was directed at them uh, as distinct from the corporation uh, as a whole, therefore is not derivative, they claim, uh, and, and shouldn't be barred. Um, what, what is your answer to that? So as we cited in our reply brief, we've cited cases from the Delaware Supreme Court and from Judges Bork, Easterbrook, and Posner, all of whom recognize that when corporate assets are dissipated, that's a derivative claim even where the recipient is a shareholder, such that the financial Yeah, effect- but when you have, excuse me, but when you have different categories of shareholders or people with financial interests, and the complaint is that they, the one class was particularly targeted, it does seem to me that that class has a unique claim that can't be characterized as just a claim of the corporation. Well, Your Honor, I think that there's no reason to differentiate between a dissipation of corporate assets pursuant to a dividend payment versus a dissipation of corporate assets pursuant to a side transaction. In the cases that we cited in our reply brief, each of those cases involves 
certain shareholders being treated better than other shareholders. And it shouldn't make any difference for purposes of a derivative claim whether that special treatment occurs pursuant to a side transaction or through a dividend payment. Well, maybe shareholders being treated differently, but when the way you're being treated differently is that you're completely wiped out, uh, I mean, the corporation doesn't have any particular interest in the balance, uh, it seems to me, at least not the same sort of interest as the uh, shareholders who are left uh, out in the cold. Well, I think the, the harm here is in the first instance to the corporation. The claim is that the corporate assets have been dissipated. So the corporation does have an injury. And I guess one way of making the point I've been trying to make is I think the shareholders would have the exact same objection if Fannie and Freddie had entered into a contract with the Treasury Department where they bought a commemorative coin from the Treasury Department and paid them for that all of their net worth in perpetuity. That would be exactly like the claims that we cited in our reply brief where you had a side transaction to a one shareholder to the disadvantage of all the other shareholders. And that's, there's just no difference for purposes of a derivative claim whether the harm to the certain shareholders comes because of a side transaction or pursuant to an amendment to the dividend obligation. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Well, Counsel, would you, um, perhaps this is redundant, but Give us another example of what uh, direct would look like rather than uh, derivative. So uh, direct claims are claims where the injury to the shareholder is, doesn't turn on a harm to the corporation. So, for example, if shareholders are injured in their right to vote, that doesn't implicate the rights of the corporation. It is a direct shareholder claim. Though, and th- the cases that have recognized d- direct suits where shareholders are harmed tend to be in those sort of contexts where there's a dilution of, for example, voting power. That's what the Delaware Supreme Court laid out in its El Paso case. Mere harm to shareholders because the corporate assets have been dissipated is a derivative claim harms to the shareholder's ability to do things that don't turn on a harm to the corporation first, those are direct claims. Well, what if you had, uh, and I know this agreement doesn't say this directly, but an agreement that simply transferred directly all dividends from existing shareholders, uh, say, to Treasury, uh, that it explicitly said that. Would that be, I, I think it's rather odd uh, that your uh, sh- that the shareholders' uh, dividends can be uh, jeopardized or depleted, uh, and that's not a direct claim, but the right to vote on uh, corporate matters is a direct claim. So what if, so what if it was more explicit? Uh, what would you say to that? So I think that would be different. I think the difference is it's not a question of being explicit versus implicit. In your hypothetical, they are acting directly on the shareholders' contractual rights to dividends. That doesn't harm the corporation at all. Maybe one way of thinking about it is it's the difference between the size of the pie and the share of the pie. The claim here is that the corporate assets have been dissipated. That is a question about the the size of the pie, and that is a harm to the corporation. In your hypothetical, what has been changed is the share of the pie. By the, There's been a direct action on the shareholder's rights to dividends that's been transferred to another shareholder. But importantly, that's not what's going on here. It might be the effect. Whenever the corporation has less assets, that's going to affect 
shareholders' ability to get dividends, no matter why this corporation's assets have been wasted or stolen. And, you know, Judge Posner's uh, opinion in the Seventh Circuit lays this out pretty clearly, that when you have a harm to the corporate assets, it just doesn't matter why the assets have been dissipated, whether it's by theft or a conflict of interest or a side transaction. In all events, the harm is in the first instance to the corporation, not to the shareholders. Thank you. Justice Breyer? Thank you. Um, I think in reading this, you could, uh, with trying to simplify as much as possible, view the shareholders' claim as saying, we bought into this corporation, it was supposed to be private, as well as having a public side, and then the government nationalized it. That's what they did. If you look at their giving the net worth to Treasury, it's nationalizing the company. Now, whatever conservators do and receivers do, they don't nationalize companies. And when they nationalized this company, naturally, they paid us nothing and our shares became worthless. And uh, so uh, what do you say? Well, Your Honor, what the Third Amendment did is it renegotiated the enterprise's financial obligations. The enterprises were saddled with no, no, I know that. But I, what I wonder is, can you, is it fair to characterize it, not with this more legal language, but just saying, look, they nationalized it. They gave the company away to the Treasury. Who do you think the Treasury is? It's the government of the United States. Right. And, and what way, I would... want to really look into this, and you'll discover they didn't get enough money for it. They did it at too cheap a price. They did it, da, 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 and they paid us nothing. All right. But can I view this as nationalization? No, Your Honor, because... because? Because what the, the agreement does is it replaces a $20 billion a year dividend. So the enterprise is already owed to the federal government $20 billion a year. Yeah. What the conservator did was say, rather than having well, that, that... goes to the reasonableness of the agreement. They say, okay, let's have a trial on that. We, you, they think it's a very reasonable thing to do. We don't. And the point is the anti-injunction clause doesn't expose the conservator's business judgment to reasonableness review. The question Uh, is whether they exceeded their powers. But they say nationalization is not the kind of thing conservators and receivers do. And therefore, you can examine it. And when you examine it, you will see how unreasonable it is. Your Honor... What the enterprises did was they renegotiated financial obligations. That is what they did. Whatever label the plaintiffs want to put on it. No, I was my fault. What the actual power that was exercised here was a renegotiation of financial obligations. That is what conservators do day in and day out. Now, the terms of this uh, renegotiation are fairly unique, but that's because the enterprises were in a fairly unique condition. Most companies don't owe $20 billion a year to the federal government. And so when they switched that, and they switched it to ensure that there was no risk to the quarter trillion dollars of capital that Treasury had committed to these enterprises, that is uh, the nature of the uh, agreement here. It is an unusual agreement, but it is still, at the end of the day, it is a renegotiation of financial obligations. That is a heartland exercise of conservatorship power. And if the anti-injunction clause means anything, it means that you don't second guess whether they could have done it a different way, whether it was a bad deal, whether they did it for bad motives. At the end of the day, what they did is they renegotiated financial obligations. Justice Alito? If we agree with you about the... uh removability of 
uh, an acting director and also agree with you that the only relevant action was one taken by the acting director, would we have any reason to address the question whether the restriction on the removal of a confirmed director is constitutional? Uh, well, yes, Your Honor. The uh, Court of Appeals, in addition to uh, declining to set aside the Third Amendment, did uh, issue a declaratory judgment that prospectively uh, the FHFA removal restriction should be set aside. Uh, petitioners here did file a cert petition where that is the first question presented. We think the court should confirm that that was a correct holding, that that removal restriction is invalid and shouldn't be applied prospectively. But we do think that it is no basis to set aside the Third Amendment, both because the acting director is in fact removable and will. Well, perhaps if it's, if it's legally irrelevant, it could be vacated on that basis without reaching the merits of the question. But let me ask you this. What is your response to the argument on the other side that confirmed directors took actions pursuant to the amendment and therefore we have to consider the status of confirmed directors? Your Honor, I don't think they've actually ever challenged any action uh, enforcing the Third Amendment by confirmed directors, and I don't know what those actions would be since they're, it, it's ministerial. The Third Amendment requires the dividends, and most maybe they, they, the only thing I can even think they might be uh, talking about, though I'd be curious what they have to say, is whether to pay the dividends under the Third Amendment in cash or instead in kind through the liquidation preference. That wouldn't do them any good either way, so I'd be surprised if that's what they're challenging. But other than that, I don't know what it would be that they'd be referring to. If we were to reach the issue of the removability of a confirmed director, and if we were to agree with you on that question, what basis do you have for distinguishing between the relief that you think is appropriate in this case and the relief that was provided in cases like Bowser, seal of law, and appointments clause cases where uh, an appointments clause violation was found. So I think the most significant difference is the fact that in this case, the Treasury Secretary was a party to the action that's being challenged. Their constitutional claim is a claim that the agency action was unconstitutionally insulated from presidential supervision. And unlike in all of the cases you just mentioned, here one of the parties to the contract is the Treasury Secretary, who of course is removable at will by the President and is the President's right-hand man. So no one can say that the President didn't have sufficient control over this agreement. And that's why it if the APA's prejudicial error rule means anything, it means you can't set aside a multi-billion dollar agreement on the theory that the president didn't have enough control over it when the president's treasury secretary signed it. That's okay. Justice, Justice Sotomayor? I just want to make sure that I get the gist of your argument, and I think I have it right. Um, I know you and the shareholders disagree on whether this deal had a reasonable cause. But let's posit a deal that didn't. For no um, rational reason, um, the FHFA sold all of Fannie and Freddie's assets in exchange for $1 to itself. It did exactly what Justice Breyer said. It nationalized things. It nationalized the company. Your position is that there is no 
court review of a decision by the FSH as conservator that could uh, give shareholders the right to challenge their action? So we think, in a, in a hypothetical like that, we think you could... the. We don't think the anti-injunction clause would bar a claim that actions were taken that have no objective, rational justification of being taken to preserve and conserve assets. We do think that even that claim would be barred by the succession clause because it would still be a derivative suit. But if, you, if the court disagreed with us about the succession clause, we, don't, we aren't arguing that the anti-injunction clause means that there's no review of anything the conservator does. We are just saying that when the conservator takes actions that may be appropriate and necessary to preserve and conserve assets, there's no second-guessing the business judgment. And I think that's an important point here. That All right, counsel, let me just stop you there. If the company is still in existence but owns by uh, the FHA. There is no um, claim. This, my colleagues have posited something close to this. But it is the shareholders who have been kicked out for no business reason. I don't see how that's a derivative suit that the succession clause would bar. Uh, it's because the shareholders' harm is derivative of the harm to the corporation. All they have lost... No, the, the corporation's not losing its profits. The corporation's actually may, um, may be gaining money by not paying out dividends to the shareholders, but, I, but it's the shareholders and not the company that's being de- uh, deprived of a profit. Well, I, I don't think that's right, Your Honor. Their, their claim is that Fannie and Fre- FHFA acted improperly in giving away the assets of the corporation. All right, counsel, I just want to get in one last question. Um, your argument is that the FHA is unconstitutionally structured, given this court's decision in Sheila Law. I see vast differences between the FHFA and the F- uh, CFPB. The F- FFA's most notable power and the reason we are here today is that they can put certain government-affiliated companies under conservatorship. Conservatorships are, are never thought of, in my experience, as an executive power. It's historically been an adjunct to the judicial power. Um, so why isn't that, and, and this is not a wide-reaching power that affects um, uh, many entities. It's one company at a time, essentially, unlike in uh, the CFPB. So why can't we say that this is an exception to Humphrey's estate or Morrison versus Olson? Uh, briefly, counsel. The question is whether it's significant executive power and the authority to decide whether to put Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship or receivership, a decision that affects the entire mortgage market and thus the home equity of every homeowner in this country is unquestionably a significant executive power. Thank you, counsel. Justice Kagan? Justice Kagan? Sorry. Uh, Mr. Bupan, can I take you back to your answers to Justice Alito? If I understood you right, you said that the only final action that's being challenged here is the Third Amendment. Um, So I'm going to uh, repeat his question to you because I wasn't quite sure I got your answer. 
If that's the case, that that's the only final action challenged here, uh, what basis would we have to do anything more than issue a, 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 a declaratory judgment about the validity of that amendment? So uh, I don't think you have it quite right. The plaintiffs in this case did seek a declaratory judgment that the structure of the FHFA was unconstitutional, and the Fifth Circuit granted them that relief, and there is a cert petition that that was granted that includes that question. So we do think it would be appropriate for this court to confirm that that aspect of the judgment is correct. Uh, I know that they asked for it, but usually if you bring an APA challenge, you know, you have to point to a final agency action that you think is wrong in some sense. And, and here, the Third Amendment was done by the acting director. If you are right about that, it doesn't raise the removal issues. So what does raise the removal issues? So it's just like Free Enterprise Fund, Your Honor. They are entitled to bring a prospective suit saying that the ongoing regulatory power of the agency over them, even absent a concrete final agency action, they can seek prospective relief against that. Because, of course, the FHFA, as a regulator, has the authority to decide whether these entities will continue to be in conservatorship or not, or whether they could be put into receivership. They, the shareholders here have the ability to say that that decision should be made only by a regulator that's constitutionally structured. Just like you're, that. Saying that, you're saying that that's true even if they're not, they're not pointing to any particular actions in the period when there was a confirmed director that they object to? Well, it's a prospective suit, Your Honor. So it's their, their point is that every regulatory decision FHFA makes going forward, including most obviously, most importantly, whether to keep the entities in conservatorship or receivership, just like in, F- in Free Enterprise Fund, the court allowed uh, a prospective suit, even though by then the investigation was basically done. Uh, it, the, the point is that you've got a regulator and a regulated entity or the shareholders of a regulated entity can bring a claim to say that that regulator is unconstitutionally structured as a prospective matter. But you are Thank right. You, and Thanks. Justice Gorsuch? I, I guess, counsel, I'm, I'm um, a little confused that this uh, declaratory judgment as to, with respect to future action seems to me like it would be appropriate for hanging on the wall, but not much else. Um, the plaintiffs here uh, have sought to, a declaratory judgment in aid of further remedies, retros, retroactive remedies that might actually do them some good, um, and, and that's the Third Amendment. And I guess I'm a little confused uh, why we wouldn't proceed to hold that the Third Amendment was void uh, from the beginning by virtue of the Appointments Clause problem. Um, that's pretty much what we did in Lucia, as you'll recall, where, where we vacated the, the, the ALJ's decision. Why wouldn't we do the same here? Well, again, because their claim is that the Third Amendment was unconstitutionally insulated from presidential supervision, but that claim is clearly wrong on the merits because it, the Third Amendment was signed by the Treasury Secretary. Who so is it's a, mer- a merits determination then? Yeah, we're not okay. making a standing argument. We're saying, and then, and then with respect, if it is, then 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 why isn't it? You're, you're, it's a harmless error argument, as I understand it. But we don't do harmless error in in structural constitutional cases typically. And if we did, isn't it rather speculative to say what would have happened here if if we would have had a different director who was actually subject to presidential 
um, oversight and the political process, especially when Congress insulated this person, in theory, from that process? Isn't that a degree of speculation that is quite beyond us? I don't think it's speculative at all, Your Honor, because, again, this isn't a decision just by the FHFA director. It was signed by the Treasury Secretary. The Treasury I Secretary. Understand, I, I understand that point, but if Congress decided to put this person uh, separate from the political process for a reason, and uh, might have been to insulate them all from uh, uh, the, the, the blowback that might come. Who knows? I don't know. You don't know. None of us knows. And that, isn't that the whole point? And, and what do we do, again, just to return to my fundamental question, is why isn't this void? Um, when we have uh, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, for example, says that an action taken by somebody who's without power is void, not just voidable, not ratifiable, it's void. Why wouldn't the same be true here? So in addition to my point about the Secretary of the Treasury, I guess I would say even from the other side of the coin, this was done by an acting director, and an acting director is also removable at will by the president. I understand that argument. Put that argument aside. Put that argument aside and your harmless error argument aside. Why wouldn't this be void? Your Honor, I, if you reject all the arguments we've made, then I suppose we would probably lose. But okay, the, all right. The Thank, the, 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 so I've got it. It's, it's a harmless error argument on the one one hand, uh, um, and uh, I, I've got it. Okay, those are your two arguments. That's it. After that, it's void. Well, in addition to our you know antecedent arguments about the succession clause, which I, I, I but I Correct. want to focus on the merits. But, but, but I got that. But but when we come to remedies, it's it's either uh, the acting director is is is, uh, is 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 reportable to the president, or it's harmless error. Okay. okay. Thank you, counsel. And I would Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice, and good morning. You were saying something there. Why don't you continue on? Yeah, so I I would like to talk a little bit about the acting director point because I think it is an important point and it avoids some of Justice Gorsuch's concerns about the Treasury Secretary side. The statute does not expressly provide that the acting director is subject to the same cost protections as the confirmed director, and this court should not read a statute to create constitutional problems. It normally reads statutes to avoid constitutional problems. So uh, an easy solution that avoids all the concerns about structural error and speculation and all the rest is to simply say that under this statute, the acting director, who is the official who took this decision on behalf of FHFA, is in fact removable at will by the president, and so there's no problem to begin with. Okay, is that true of all acting officials? It, uh, you know, I'd have to look at any given statute to tell you the answer, Your Honor. But well, I guess, is it true, is, is your uh, principle that you're asserting there that acting officials are presumptively removable at will by the president unless the statute with respect to the acting director or acting official himself or herself specifically puts restrictions on the removable uh, removability? Yes, I, 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 our general position is that you should not leapfrog from any cause restriction for a confirmed official and assume that that extends to an acting official. Uh, you have to always look at these provisions that govern the acting official and see whether there's a removal restriction for them. That's con- both as a matter of constitutional avoidance and as a matter of the short-lived clear statement requirement and as a matter of simple common sense. You know, Congress might have very good reasons for why it wouldn't impose a removal restriction on an acting official that it did for a confirmed official, namely that the Senate has actually confirmed 
the person. So then at that point, they might be willing to give them tenure protection. But someone that has never gone through the gauntlet of Senate confirmation, Congress might well be unwilling to provide them with tenure protection. So both as a matter of text and common sense and structural constitutional provisions and constitutional avoidance, you shouldn't read the statute to create a constitutional problem, let alone to set aside a multi-billion dollar contract. Well, those are good points. I guess the one point that's in tension with that is that Congress also designated it an independent agency, and if the official, even though acting, running it is uh, removable at will, the agency is no longer independent. So I'll make two points about that, Your Honor. The first is that Congress often designates agencies as as an independent establishment, even when they're conceitedly not subject to any cause restrictions at all. The best example of that I can give you is if you look at Swan versus Clinton, the agency there was uh, described as independent, but an earlier iteration of that agency was removable expressly at will by the president. The second point I would make is that the fact that the agency is independent, even if that says something about cause restrictions, it's one thing to say that that they're independent when they've got a confirmed director. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're independent when they have an acting director. And we know that for this statute itself, because if you look at this statute, before the first confirmed director, there was a transitional period. And the head of the FHFA during that transitional period was an officer in HUD who was not subject to any cause restriction. Justice Barrett? Mr. Mupen, let's say that we agree with you that the Third Amendment was entered into by an acting director who was removable at will by the president. Um, And so the entry into the Third Amendment, let's say, was valid. um, There was no constitutional problem with it. Let's say that we also agree with you that there was a problem with the confirmed director because he was removable only for cause. And so the confirmed director was administering the Third Amendment, um, administering the conservatorship and passing along all the earnings from the GSEs into the Treasury. Would that create a structural problem? Because even though perhaps the Third Amendment um, at its inception was valid, could the administering of the Third Amendment by an unconstitutional executive official contaminate it with structural errors such that the whole Third Amendment would have to be set aside? I don't think so, Your Honor, because, again, the only, there's not some discretionary decision within the Third Amendment other than perhaps whether the, uh, the dividends that are owed are paid in cash or instead paid as a liquidation preference, neither of which would do the plaintiffs here any good, and that's not the claim that they're bringing. Their claim isn't that the Third Amendment is valid, but the money should all be paid in liquidation preferences. Their claim is that the Third Amendment itself should be set aside. Well, so who decides when the Third Amendment, when this arrangement should come to an end, if ever? Because, you know, Treasury viewed it as winding down the GSEs, um, winding down their assets, although, you know, it's been characterized not as a receivership, but as a conservatorship. Um, could the confirmed director have said, okay, listen, now this is no longer um, serving to make the GSE solvent, and so it's time to shift arrangements? Did the confirmed director have that authority under the Third Amendment? So, yes, just like the Second Amendment and the First Amendment and everything else that the agency does, right? That's why we think that they're entitled to relief prospectively that the FHFA director should be removable at will, and then if the FHFA director wants to change any of these agreements and can get Treasury but, free, but, they can. But let me just ask you this. If the confirmed director could have taken that action at some point in the past, why isn't that an injury? 
Uh, yeah, it's not. It's just not a problem with the Third Amendment any different than everything else, right? That that is essentially a challenge to agency inaction, the failure to amend the contract. On that theory, all of the agreements would have to go, not just the Third Amendment, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, the original amendment. So you would have to. They, Fannie and Freddie would have to lose all of the money Treasury has ever given them and all of the capital that has backstopped them. That's not the claim they've brought, and it would be disastrous. Let me just ask you one last quick question. This is shifting gears to the distinction between direct and derivative suits. I'm having a hard time understanding why that corporate law distinction is matters in this APA claim, why we can import those concepts of, from corporate law into the APA, because it seems to me that the shareholders have Article Three standing. They suffered a pocketbook injury. You haven't contended, I don't think, that they're not within the zone of interest of the statute. And the APA gives a direct cause of action for someone aggrieved by agency action. So why do we even care about the direct derivative distinction? Uh, Briefly, counsel. The APA doesn't displace traditional corporate law. It incorporates it. And that's why in the 70-year history of the APA, plaintiffs haven't been able to cite a single case that has allowed a shareholder to bring what would otherwise be a derivative suit. You have a minute to wrap up, counsel. The Third Amendment should not be set aside. If the APA's prejudicial error rule means anything at all, courts cannot set aside a multi-billion dollar contract on the ground that it was unconstitutionally insulated from presidential supervision, even though both of the officials who signed it were removable at will by the president. If the Recovery Act's anti-injunction clause means anything at all, courts cannot set aside a conservator's renegotiation of complex financial obligations by second-guessing the conservator's statutory exercise of business judgment. And in all events, the Recovery Act Succession Clause bars both claims. No case in the history of the APA or American corporation law appears to allow a shareholder to claim direct rather than derivative injury merely because the corporation's assets allegedly were dissipated unlawfully to another shareholder. Accordingly, this court should reject the challenges to the Third Amendment but uphold the determination that the FHFA director's removal restriction is unconstitutional yet severable. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Nielsen? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, there is a very easy way to answer the constitutional question in this case. The court should hold that unless Congress says so in a statute, an acting director does not have tenure, full stop. I agree with the Solicitor General on this in all respects but one. Because an acting director is removable at will, this part of the case should be over. As the United States explained below, plaintiffs do not, in fact, challenge ongoing action by the FHFA. That, rather than the government's latest position, is correct. I urge the court to read JA 117. There is no reference to any prospective suit or anything like that in the complaint here. If the court chooses to tackle the harder questions, it should still reverse. First, for the reasons this court gave in the Salo Law, the FHFA does not wield significant executive power because it does not regulate purely private actors. Even the Department of Justice concedes that conservatorship is not an exercise of executive power. By itself, this is another reason to reverse. Regardless, neither party undermines Sela Law's observation that the FHFA isn't in the same league as the CFPB when it comes to liberty. Second, the court should focus on the actual text of the statute, which the parties essentially ignore. Neither party meaningfully disputes that for cause provides the weakest protection in removal law and can easily be read to allow removal based on policy disagreement with the president. The parties say that even that is unconstitutional. 
but their argument makes a hash out of the take care clause. And it would also have far-reaching consequences. Under their logic, the Social Security Administration, the Office of Special Counsel, the Federal Reserve, the Civil Service will all be subject to constitutional attack. And that's just the beginning. Neither party offers this court a coherent line. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, thank you, counsel. Um, I'd like to give, get your take on the question a number of my colleagues have been uh, asking. Um, uh, say I agree with you that the uh, acting director uh, uh, is constitutional because removable at will, and he enters into the Third Amendment. Uh, but the Third Amendment provides for payments in an ongoing way, and including payments under uh, uh, a regular director who uh, is is not constitutionally uh, appointed. How does that work? What are the consequences, uh, uh, particularly for the payments that take place under the jurisdiction of the unconstitutionally appointed director? I agree with the Solicitor General's answer on this point. The Third Amendment is not ongoing agency action. It is a discrete thing. It is a contract. Um, and that is what is challenged. That's the decision of the Haynes majority of the Fifth Circuit and Bonk decision. That is the discrete thing being challenged. There is not ongoing discretion that might affect the interests of the plaintiffs here. It's a contract, and that contract is, is what governs. Well, there were contracts before the Third Amendment, too, and they were significantly altered. But I guess my question is, what if the uh, uh, complaining stockholders here you know, sent a letter to the, uh, the director, the confirmed one, and said, uh, we want you to uh, get out of this agreement because it's unfair to us. And the director said no. That would be action by the regular uh, director and certainly it would seem to me could be challengeable uh, un- under the, uh, given that unconstitutionality. Well, uh, I guess two points, Your Honor. First, nothing like that is in the complaint. There's no complaint about this tank theory. So, you know, this is all hypothetical. Uh, but beyond that, this is an ordinary agency action where you could, like, file a petition for rulemaking or something like that. It's a contract, and sure, the parties can renegotiate the contract, but it takes two to tango, and it's not just the decision of the, of the FHFA. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, <clears throat> counsel, usually when you have an agency action, it's an enforcement action or... Uh, something that affects a particular party. Here you're talking about a major change in an, in, in an uh, entity in which the uh, uh, party, the plaintiffs, are invested. Now, they do, I know you want to keep us at the sort of the initial stage of Amendment 3 or the Third Amendment, but there are, as Justice uh, uh, Barrett noted, what about the administration of it now? It's still in existence. It affects them. And what about the future administration that will have a continuing effect? Uh, this is unlike other uh, agency actions. So how do you address that? Well, first, I would, again, point the court to the actual complaint here. It's on page J117 is the relevant count. And there's no ongoing taint theory here. So all of this is, is hypothetical. But again, this is a contract. And with a contract, sure, you might be unhappy with it, but it was entered into it by a conservator who wasn't even exercising executive power. And the FHFA as regulator can't just undo a contract. It takes a decision from the FHFA and the Treasury Department. 
So the mere fact that it was uh, it was fortuitous enough for a an acting director to do this insulates it from like from uh, uh, challenge. Well, with respect, Your Honor, I don't think it's this side that is relying on a fluke. Uh, the the idea that the acting that the for cause provision has anything whatsoever to do with the Third Amendment is entirely implausible, uh, and that's why none of the other complaints or, or counts that raise this in other in other courts even raise this as an issue because it just didn't have anything to do with it. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Um, thank you. As probably you know. Uh, in the uh, structural cases like Peekaboo and, and the others, I dissented. Very well. What is your advice to me? Should I, in a sense, throw in the towel? <laughs> Should I stick to my prior dissents? <laughs> Should I say this is different because, and of course I'm particularly interested in what follows the because? What would you do? Well, this is different because the thing that is being challenged here, leaving aside the acting point, is an act of a conservator, and that isn't even executive power. The Department of Justice, which is about the most vigorous defender of presidential power on earth, concedes that this is not executive power. So that's one way to, to distinguish this entire issue. This is not doesn't raise any of those types of issues um, in this case. So well, what but, is it? It's, it's it's not part of the Article Three judiciary. It's no, not Your part Honor. Of the Article One legislature, and what does that leave? It leaves Article Two. Well, no, Your Honor. The court has not been clear if it's private power or simply non-sovereign power. Uh, my gut says it's non-sovereign power because it's an agency that's doing it. But if a private person can do it, the government can do it too, and that doesn't take executive power to get there. No different than, in, you know, ordering books or anything like that that the court does. That doesn't make ordering books a judicial power. It's just something that government can do to function. Thank you. Justice Alito. We have said uh, many times that structural provisions of the Constitution, like the Appointments Clause and uh, rules about the removal of executive officers are ultimately important because they affect ordinary people. They affect liberty, as you just mentioned. They affect democratic accountability. Uh, the argument against your position here includes the, the proposition that the way in which the agency carries out its responsibility as conservator has a profound effect on the housing market and therefore a profound effect on ordinary people. What's your answer to that? The court needs to decide what type of power conservatorship is. And once you know the answer to that, then the, the logic all falls into place. Conservatorship is not executive power. There are things that have vast significance for the economy that are not executive power. I point to the courts to the Bank of the United States, which surely was even more consequential than this, but it wasn't executive power because banking was not understood as executive power. You know, so too here, essentially being a conservator for a government insurer is not executive power. It's just outside of Article 2, even though it has significant effects on the economy. All right, thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Um, counsel, I, I'm, um, the FHFA is, as a director, um, an executive appointment, 
They presumably have executive decision-making, but it seems to be that you're trying to say that we should not be looking at the agency qua agency as an executive agency, but we should see whether the power that they're wielding in individual situations is executive or not. Am I getting your argument correct? Mostly correct. I, I think that you could look at the type of power for a broader range of things. So if we're talking about the agency as regulator, you would look well, at the agency. Not, I, I think one of my colleagues asked this. If the FHSA is not an executive agency, what is it? Put aside the conservatorship part of it. Is it or is it not an executive agency? Yes, uh, the FHSA is an executive agency in that it has a regulatory function, too. This case, All right, so if it's an executive agency, then I think we do have to look at the constitutionality of its structure. And, um, and if we have to do that, how do we get to a subdivision of whether an individual act it did was executive or not? difficulty separating the concepts. Well, I would point the court, if we're looking at the powers as regulator, they are not significant executive power. They exist, but, con but Congress has essentially given the FHSA uh, you know, a recipe book. This is what you're supposed to do. It's almost binary, and that easily allows for cause to control the exercise of this power because it doesn't have the sort of discretion that the CFEB did. So that's actually the point I was raising with uh, the government earlier, uh, but I still see that as a different argument. So if the shareholders, uh, if the uh, shareholders have argued that the directors for cause removal is a structural error, that has to do with Justice Alito's question and Justice Gorsuch's earlier questioning of the government. If they're correct, do we have discretion against enjoining the third act? How do we get from a structural error to a harmless error? What do we consider to do that? In which situations are we permitted to do that? Well, it certainly would be the case when you're talking about conservatorship. I know that, that isn't exactly the question, but here if we're talking about a discrete act, which is the thing that they have challenged, and that act did not require any executive power whatsoever, it's hard for me to see how you can get into the question of, you know, is it harmless error? There was no constitutional violation at the threshold. Thank you, counsel. Justice Kagan? Uh, Mr. Nielsen, you just said that the FHFA is not a very important agency, doesn't have very uh, many powers. But I would think it has all the powers that both the majority and the dissent uh, referred to in SELA law. I mean, there's not much that those two opinions agreed on, but this seems to be one of them that, uh, uh, you know, the FHFA makes rules, it conducts enforcement actions, it has subpoena power. You know, even the dissent, again, in SELA law says, I'm quoting here, the FHFA plays a crucial role in overseeing the mortgage market on which millions of Americans annually rely. So how can you say this? Again, my answer to this would be I understand all of that. Uh, I think you're always safe going with the majority, and the majority says, that it's not a lot of power, but your point is well taken. I think the way that you reconcile the dissent and the majority is the dissent is saying, look how much effect it has in the real world, and the majority is saying, but look at how much power it actually exercises. The difference between this agency and the CFPB is the CFPB has vast discretion. 
Whereas if you go through the statute here, it's true they can do certain things, but only in a very, very limited way. Uh, Congress has essentially said, here is the instruction manual, go forth and do it. And for something as reticulated as that, if the agency doesn't do it correctly, the president can say that's cause. That's the easiest type of cause there is. You're supposed to have a report. I don't have a report. You're out the door. But when, you're, you're suggesting that there's a difference between just saying for cause and, and saying inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. But, but where do we that, get that? I mean, w- once again, the majority said we don't want to really parse the language that way. And uh, the dissent just assumed that these were essentially coterminous restrictions. Well, the easiest way to look at this is if these are companion agencies and Congress uses one language in Dodd-Frank and the other language in the Recovery Act, we ordinarily assume they mean different things. And for all the reasons that Dean Manning explains in his article, Kent Barnett explains in his article, the ordinary meaning of four cause, at least with constitutional avoidance, allows that type of removal. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. Justice Gorsuch. Good morning, Mr. Nielsen. Um, a, a lot of, of your remedial argument seems to hinge on uh, the happenstance that we had an acting director at the time of the Third Amendment's adoption. I, I'd like to highlight two potential difficulties with that and ask for your thoughts. The first is um, the assumption that the acting director is uh, answerable to the president while the director is not. Uh, under the statutes creating this outfit, uh, the director appoints deputy directors, the, the director, not the president. Um, it appears that those deputy directors would be insulated from the president, therefore. And uh, when, when the director steps aside, he names the acting director, or rather he gives a pool of three of his deputies, and the president chooses which of those three. Um, but the director appointed all three of them. So I'm not sure in what sense or where we get the inference or how we generate from some penumbra emanating somewhere that the president has the removal power over this acting director. That's one. And two is, let's, let's spot you that. Let's assume that's the case. Um, so what? Uh, the, the, the plaintiffs here challenged actions uh, after during this whole period, including after a period in which the acting director disappeared and we now have a director. You say, well, that, that, that doesn't matter because the, the amendment is a thing that was adopted by the acting director. But the plaintiffs are challenging the director's actions as void because he is unanswerable to the president. So why wouldn't we at least be able to provide relief uh, voiding the director's actions once we had uh, a Senate-confirmed director in 2014? Well, that's a lot to answer. I'll do my best. As to the acting point, uh, the the premise of the other side's argument is that the Vacancies Act doesn't apply. I don't see the basis for that. That's not consistent with how courts have read it in analogous circumstances. But even beyond that, uh, merely because assuming that the president could only pick among those three, that says nothing about whether the president can remove them. Ordinarily, the power to designate includes the power to undesignate, and here the statute says nothing whatsoever to prevent the ordinary operation of of that background principle. As to the so what, I would point the court again to JA 117, which is the actual complaint here. 
there isn't this ongoing theory uh, that, you know, we're challenging uh, future actions. All they were challenging was the Third Amendment. Uh, you know, you can maybe make an argument that the Third Amendment should be, you know, undone or something like that, but that's not even pleaded. And the idea that agency inaction or, you know, merely defending something that was constitutional when done becomes unconstitutional really has no limiting principle. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, good morning, Mr. Nielsen. Is there anything more you wanted to say in response to Justice Gorsuch? Yeah, I would also like to talk about the acting point a little bit more. One of the arguments that the other side makes is that the president could use the acting to try to get away from ever having Senate confirmation. And that, there, there's two reasons why that isn't so. One is Congress has many tools to try to stop presidential shenanigans like that. Uh, but more than that, there is an appointments clause backstop to all of this. The head of an agency is supposed to be a Senate-confirmed officer. You can have temporary uh, non-Senate-confirmed you know, non officers heading an agency, but the appointments clause is a firm backstop against that kind of chicanery that the, that the, the plaintiffs posit. In your opening, you mentioned uh, a slippery slope argument that if this agency uh, structure was unconstitutional, then so too would be the Social Security Administration and the Office of Special Counsel, which are also headed by single directors, and I think the Solicitor General agrees on that. But then you went on to name multi-member agencies in the federal uh, and uh, civil service, and my understanding of the principle that would be applicable here would be that single director independent agencies um, are not historically rooted, as the court said, in seal of law, and that's all we would be saying and applying here. Uh, so in my brief, I make the point, uh, what do you do with the chair of the Federal Reserve, which is separately nominated, separately confirmed, and has his or her own statutory duties? That's not controlled by a multi-member entity. He or she has her own duties under, under, under law. Uh, I have a theory for why that isn't unconstitutional. I don't think that power is significant. Uh, I also don't think you should start inferring removal protections. Um, but under their theory, why is that? Un why would that be constitutional? How could that be constitutional? Likewise, for the civil service, uh, you know, in state law, the court says we're not going to, you know, recognize uh, an exception for inferior officers that make wield policy-making powers, or we haven't recognized one yet. Well, if that's the case. All a plaintiff has to do is throw on, as a last count to a complaint, a challenge to somebody who's a, a member, member of the civil service who may have been involved and say that person really is an inferior officer, and the whole thing comes crashing down. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. Uh, Justice Barrett? So, Mr. Nielsen, I would have come away from SELA law thinking that there were two exceptions to this rule, Humphrey's executor and Morrison versus Olson. But it seems to me, and this goes back to some of the questions that Justices Sotomayor and Kagan were pressing you on, um, it seems to me that you're kind of arguing for a third ground here, which is, well, we, then we take a look at what is the uh, executive official really doing? Does this really seem like a lot of executive power, a little executive power, something that looks more like private power? It strikes me as a pretty hard test to administer. So could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, significant, of course, is not my word. That's what the court used mo numerous times in the law itself. So I look to the law to understand what the court means by significant. 
And I think state law makes plain that significant captures the liberty and accountability concerns that require plenary control. The court focused on two things, whether private citizens are being regulated and whether there is substantial policy discretion. Here, no one's talked about the point that the court said in state law that the FHFA does not regulate purely private actors. Uh, we're not talking about the same sort of you know, course of power of the state that the CFPB wields. Likewise, Congress has tightly reticulated what this agency can do. It's like an instruction manual. And with a four-cause removal protection, it makes the president easily can control this thing so it doesn't slip, the, slip its leash um, or, the, or the buck doesn't stop with the president. The president has ample ability to control this type of agency. Thank you, Mr. Nielsen. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Nielsen. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I would like to return to the point that Justice Kavanaugh made about, you know, the parade of horribles or where does this end. Uh, the court is going to have to answer some very hard questions, including what is the constitutional basis for any of this? Is it the vesting clause? Well, if so, why doesn't the logic of that end all the way with the civil service? Is it the take care clause? If so, how could a provision that allows for removal for insubordination prevent the president from faithfully executing the law? Likewise, just how relaxed is standing in these cases? And you know, more than that, how far is the court really willing to go without clear constitutional text to guide it? These are all hard questions that have significance far beyond this appeal. Thankfully, however, the court doesn't need to answer any of them because an acting director doesn't have tenure to begin with. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Thompson? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the net worth sweep leaves Fannie and Freddie with no reasonable prospect of becoming adequately capitalized. And so long as it remains in place, the company's best case scenario is to operate with so little capital that under Section 4617A3, FHFA could place them into receivership at any time. FHFA abandoned its conservatorship mission when it imposed the net worth sweep and the claim that only FHFA may sue FHFA for nationalizing Fannie and Freddie is contrary to this court's decision in American power, decades of precedent on the lenient zone of interest test, and the strong presumption favoring judicial review of agency action. Congress enacted the APA to make judicial review widely available to anyone who is aggrieved within the meaning of a relevant statute, and shareholders are aggrieved by the net worth sweep. But even under ordinary principles of state corporation law, our claims may proceed because they are direct. There are two distinct injuries caused by the net worth sweep. One, suffered by the companies, which cannot rebuild capital and return to a sound condition. And another, suffered by private shareholders who were, remo were removed from the company's capital structures. To see this, consider a hypothetical Third Amendment that required the companies to pay their net worth to plaintiffs rather than Treasury. That action would have injured the companies no less than the real Third Amendment but it would not have visited an injury on plaintiffs. The net worth sweep needlessly dissipated the assets of the companies FHFA is charged with rehabilitating. And FHFA's sweeping claims to unlimited standardless discretion powerfully illustrate the framers' wisdom in refusing to vest executive authority in an unaccountable fourth branch of government. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, thank you, counsel. Um, your claim, which you describe as the uh, nationalization uh, of the enterprises, 
um, is basically that the common shareholders or your your clients were were, were left out in the cold uh, and their holdings uh, rendered worthless. Um, but I checked this morning and Fannie Mae was trading at two dollars and sixty nine cents and Freddie Mac at two dollars and fifty six cents. And your shares um, are not worthless; they're worth something, uh, and presumably largely based on judgments about what the future holds. So um, doesn't that run, render your sort of nationalization uh, rhetoric just that, rhetoric? Uh, no, no, Your Honor, in, in the sense of there's no scenario under the Third Amendment in which we will be able to recover uh, any economic value. It's true that there's value in the shares, but that's attributable to two factors. Number one, this lawsuit. And number two, uh, that there is an ongoing political discussion about what to do with these companies. And maybe one day in the future, uh, the government will abandon uh, the network suite. But right now, it's in force and effect, and it's, the companies have been nationalized. Well, p- putting aside the loss, lawsuit uh, uh, answer, the future does seem to me to suggest that there is still value uh, uh, in your shares. Now, it may be a gamble on the future, but that's, that has value uh, in itself. And on the other side of that, we can't lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, this was uh, the Third Amendment. This was a lifeline uh, uh, t- uh, thrown to uh, uh, your clients, and that has to be uh, worth something, too. Well, Your Honor, so first of all, respectfully, I I don't think the court should put aside the the lawsuit. That's an important driver, obviously, in the value of the stock. But in terms of the lifeline, Your Honor, I I would just point out that the network sweep exposed that line of commitment to maximum vulnerability because the companies can never build up capital to absorb losses. So if there had not been a network sweep, there'd be $124 billion of capital on the balance sheet today standing between future losses and the line of commitment. The the network sweep took away that ability to rebuild capital and has exposed that lifeline to maximum vulnerability. Uh, do you make a claim going forward about the uh, uh, payments, even if you accept the validity of what the acting director did? Yes, Your Honor, we do. Under 12 CFR 1237.12 A and B, uh, not a penny it can be paid to the Treasury without the approval of the director. And since 2014, there's been a Senate-confirmed director with four-cause removal protection. And on JA-118, we're asking that all those future payments be enjoined. Well, so your theory is that even if an acting director approved the instrument under which payments are going to be made, that when those payments are made, if there's an unconstitutional director, uh, that they are invalid? Well, we are challenging the regulatory action of the Senate-confirmed directors uh, in approving these dividends. And, of course, there's 4512F, which handcuffs the president. And so that even if there's an acting director, the president can't put uh, the person that he wants in there. He has to pick one of the three deputy directors who were, in turn, picked by the prior director. Thank you, counsel. Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Thompson, the, um, both the government and amicus point out that your complaint only uh, notes uh, or, or focuses on the adoption of Amendment 3, or uh, the Third Amendment. And I admit that, uh, obviously, your, your uh, prayer for relief uh, speaks in injunctive relief, uh, 
as you just noted. Uh, but uh, would you spend a few minutes on that should, uh, as to how we read in continuing implementation of the amendment and future implement, implementation of the amendment when you only complain of the adoption of the amendment? Th thank you, uh, Your Honor. We, we do complain about the adoption, but we also note throughout the complaint the overpayments that were being made. We calculate those overpayments to be $124 billion, and each one of those overpayments was an implementation of the network sweep. So that theme really runs throughout uh, our complaint. We also complain about how, over time, uh, the, the commitment itself has been exposed to vulnerability, um, and so the implementation issues are important, and that's one of the reasons on JA 118 why we ask for an injunction in the future uh, so that there aren't any more dividend payments to the Treasury at the expense of the private shareholders. Would it um, have affected your uh, separation of powers argument if the president, uh, together with the director, uh, uh, a future or subsequent director, and the uh, Secretary of the Treasury fully endorsed Amendment 3, openly endorsed it, endorsed it in writing. Uh, uh, in, a sense, in essence, if all three ratified uh, what had been done with this amendment, would it change your uh, complaint at all? Well, certainly if it was done after the fact, it, we, it would still be unconstitutional. One of the things that's pernicious about this structure is it reduced the president in the real world, to the cajoler-in-chief, where this was, as one of my friends on the other side said, it takes two to tango. And so this wasn't a reflection of what the president wanted. It was a reflection of what the president was able to negotiate. In your hypothetical, uh, Justice Thomas, if they were all to have done that simultaneously on day one, that might have changed things. But the other thing to realize is if we were creating a but-for world in which there was no for-cause removal protection, we'd have to go back to the beginning of the agency, at least to the beginning of the Obama administration, and see how the companies and the conservator were different in 2012 at the time of the sweep. Uh, the administration had ongoing fights with Mr. DeMarco. It led, uh, we put this in our red brief at page 72, to uh, calls for Mr. DeMarco to be fired, and the administration said, we don't have the authority to fire him. Uh, but how would we um, unscramble the egg here? Uh, how do we put the parties back into uh, the position they were in prior to Amendment 3? Thank you, Your Honor. Our preferred remedy that we articulated to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on Bank is that the overpayments measured against the $18.9 billion of dividends that were uh, being paid, that anything above that be treated as a paydown of principal on the government's liquidation preference. And if you do the math, the government's been paid back in total plus 10% interest, and there's $29.5 billion left over. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals asked the parties to address three questions. They gave the government uh, 100 pages between FHF and, and Treasury to address it. It said, quote, in practical terms, what would setting aside the net worth sweep entail, and how would it affect other functions of the FHFA? And in response to our preferred remedy, the government and FHFA said precisely nothing. They did not object. They had no practical concerns that they gave voice to. Thank and you. it's an accounting Justice, Justice Breyer? Um, the, um, talk, you, you said, well, this is really like a nationalization. Uh, and they, the government 
took the company, gave it to the Treasury, and our shares are near worthless. Uh, well, why didn't you bring a takings claim? Your Honor, we have brought a takings claim, but that doesn't absolve this court of, under the APA, of addressing our uh, challenge to the lawfulness of the agency action, and there's no reason to think... I didn't that, say it did. Yeah. But no, I was just thinking yeah. if you brought a takings claim, yeah, yes, and Your it Honor. seems like a takings claim, well, why we should we stretch... Uh, out of recognition or stretch or try to draw lines unnecessarily on the question of derivative actions. Well, I think I mean, it's basically... We're a derivative action of a conservator. In fact, he so goes so far that the company's hurt, really hurt, and the shareholders are destroyed, bring a takings claim. But as long as there's a colorable claim, as long as there's a colorable defense, forget it. Apply ordinary derivative law. Well, Your Honor, two points. Number one, principles of constitutional avoidance would counsel in favor of not reading uh, that Congress as having authorized nationalization. There's no reason to think Congress would have wanted to stick the taxpayers with a big tab for a takings uh, verdict in the Court of Federal Claims. But also, if the court were to apply traditional measures of uh, derivative direct, uh, we say we win. We would point to the Allegheny oh, I case. I see that, but you have a rather special company, which your shareholders brought into, bought into with knowledge, and that is a company that has a public as well as a, uh, more of a public aspect than ordinary. Uh, they are there, and both parts are relevant. And so even if this is at the border of derivative actions, uh, shouldn't we interpret the derivative actions? Why not? to encompass what goes on here with a colorable argument that they did it for the benefit of the, comp uh, of the corporation. Well, again, Your Honor, constitutional avoidance. We don't think the court should uh, depart from its precedents in Allegheny to create a massive taking liability. All right. If I have time for one more question, I don't know. Uh, on your APA claim, uh, my cousin Joe, whom I love dearly, I give to him a piece of land. And I assign to him, though I can retain ownership, I assign to him all rights to bring any lawsuit, defend lawsuits. I have no rights left in respect to that land. I gave them all to Joe. And if Bill comes along and cuts the tree illegally, it's Joe who can sue, not me, right? And as long as that's so, why is the APA any different? Suppose it's the Forest Service that does something to that land. I assigned all my rights to Joe. Joe can bring an APA claim, but I gave mine away. Right? Well, Your Honor, if that's right, how is this any different? Well, because, Your Honor, here it would be Joe suing Joe because uh, they, they would have to sue themselves, and it's a succession clause, not a termination clause. Congress knew how to terminate claims. They did so in 4617B2Kii, where they terminated the claims in receivership, and they didn't do that here with uh, the, the, the conservatorship. So we I'm would thinking of the I'm thinking of the anti-injunction clause, you see, or I'm thinking of both clauses. Look, Joe can't sue because I assigned to Joe. I mean, I can't sue because I gave all those rights to Joe. Now, is the APA any different if that's Joe's claim? It, it, it is different, Your because, Honor, if we look at the language of... 
of this uh, statute, it said it doesn't say just all rights go. It says all with respect to the regulated entity and its assets, and that's been understood not to include direct claims, only the derivative claims, and not the derivative claims that would be terminated. Justice all right, Alito. All right, all right, counsel, let me give you this hypothetical situation: a director is appointed, and Upon appointment, the director and the president have a joint news conference. The president says, uh, I know the statute says that you are removable only for cause, but that's unconstitutional. Under the Constitution, I can remove you at will, and I will proceed on that basis. And the director says, I agree, and I will conduct myself on that understanding. And, in fact, I will verify every single morning that you still want me in office and you don't as a matter of whim, want me to leave. Uh, Would it follow that everything done thereafter by the director uh, is is void ab initio? Well, Your Honor, I I think that would uh, obviously mitigate the concerns over the president being the cajoler-in-chief but not having sufficient control over the agency. There'd still be a residual concern that, well, the director might change his mind, and then he's got this legal protection. uh, And so there still might be some issues about accountability uh, and liberty, but uh, it, it certainly would be a much less problematic situation than what we have here. Well, I I do think we have to answer that question in order to determine whether it follows that the the identification of an unconstitutional restriction on removal necessarily means, because it is a structural defect, that everything done by that officer is void ab initio. Well, Your Honor, we do think that this qualifies under Weaver for being a structural uh, error for two reasons. Number one, their interests beyond the outcome that is produced. There's the interest in accountability. And also, it's hard to measure the effects. That's why uh, this court, presumably, in SELA law and free enterprise said, plaintiffs don't have to create a but-for world. Federal courts aren't well-suited to psychoanalyzing coordinate branches of government and what they would do in a hypothetical world. And so where it's hard to measure the effects, and that's particularly true here, where, again, it was a negotiation between a Republican appointee and the Obama administration, and they had had bitter disputes throughout uh, the three years that Mr. DeMarco was there. Well, it is hard to measure the, the, the effects, but sometimes we have to do things that are hard. Uh, suppose we were to agree with Mr. Nielsen, that this can't be distinguished from the, uh, the head of the Social Security Administration. Or suppose we were to overrule Humphrey's executor, as some members of the court have suggested. Do you think it would follow that everything ever done by a Social Security Administrator or everything ever done by the FCC uh, or one of the other multi-member commissions was void ab initio, they would all be wiped off the books? Your Honor, as I understand it, in free enterprise, the court left open the question of if it's a lower-level employee uh, who made the determination at the Social Security Administration, whether that would have to be voided. But certainly, yes, our position is everything done by the principal officers of those agencies uh, would, would be void. Of course, there'd be the statute of limitations in Article 3 uh, that would limit what would have to be thrown out. And, of course, in Noel Canning, this court invalidated 20 months of the NLRB's activities. Well, do you think that if a provision of a massive statute is held to be unconstitutional, a person who is not in any way affected by 
that provision uh, is entitled to relief? Well, when you, if, if they've suffered Article Three injury at the hands of that person uh, and it's a separation of powers case, I do think it should be void uh, given the broad prophylactic protections that separation of powers uh, protect. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Um, I want to follow up a little bit on Justice Alito's questions. It does seem... Um, counterintuitive, perhaps illogical, to say that um, assuming you're right that the FHFA director must be removable at will, why you should get anything more than a, than a declaratory judgment to that effect. First, um, the argument is that it, um, this decision was entered into by two entities under the complete control of the president. There is no dispute that the treasury has, uh, treasurer is removable at will. So we know what the president would have wanted because he had an agency he fully and unequivocally controlled entering this agreement. And then secondly, we have an acting director, which almost logically means that he could be removable, entering it. Second, no president has ever tried to remove the director, acting or otherwise. And so given those circumstances, I am not sure why structural, how this agreement or even the at-will, how the at-will termination affected you. Well, Your Honor, uh, why you're entitled to an unwinding of an agreement that was entered into, um, assuming, again, assuming we rule against you, that had a valid or a reasonable business reason for being entered into. Your Honor, respectfully, we don't know what the president wanted. We know the president was willing to sign this deal. Otherwise, the Secretary of Treasury wouldn't have signed it. But as my friends on the other side said, it took two to tango. This was a negotiation, and it was a negotiation with a Republican appointee with whom things, relationships had gotten so bad that on our red brief at page 72, we point out there was open calls for him to be fired, and the administration said he's an acting director and we can't fire him. And presumably that's because of 40 5511A that says it shall be an independent agency of the federal government. And under this interpretation that the acting director can be fired, it would toggle back from being a radically independent agency to a radically dependent agency. My friend on the other side points to the Swan case, but there that was the NCUA, and there were three board members, and the fact that one of them became dependent didn't transform the agency radically. Here, when you have a single director, and you say that the acting director can be uh, fired at, at will, then you uh, just radically transform the nature of it. In addition, even if I'm wrong about that, under 4512F, the president's ha hands are handcuffed in terms of whom he can designate, and we do challenge the actions of the regulator. Um, so for all those reasons, we, we're entitled to relief. Certainly, backward-looking relief was given in the Basher case as well. You argue that the APA eliminates any need to look into whether a shareholder's injury is derivative of an injury suffered by the corporation. Do I take it that you're taking the position 
that anyone holding a single share in a company can challenge any agency action or rulemaking that affects the company's stock price? Uh, Your Honor, that would be seen to me as a sea change in how administrative law challenges are litigated. Your Honor, this was a concern that the American power dissent uh, articulated, and 75 years later, it hasn't come to fruition. And I think because of cases like Air Courier, there you have the Postal Service with a monopoly on international air routes. The employees came forward uh, when that monopoly was lost and said, that's going to hurt us economically. And the court said, these employees aren't within the zone of interest. But HERA is different because it's highly protective of shareholders' rights. We see that in the rehabilitative mission uh, of the conservator. We see that in receivership where there's a priority scheme as to how the money can be distributed. And we see that in the preserve and conserve mandate. And we see that in 4617B11E, which requires uh, the conservator to maximize the net present value of asset sales. That protects shareholders more than anyone because they're at the bottom of the waterfall. Justice Kagan? Getting proceeds. Uh, Mr. Thompson, let's go back to uh, Justice Alito's question about the Social Security Administration. I'll put some scary-sounding numbers on this. Um, The SSA has been led by a single commissioner since 1994, and ever since then it's rendered 650,000 decisions every year. So that's about 17 million decisions. Now, you told Justice Alito, well, maybe there's some exception for lower-level employees I'm not sure that AOJs would qualify as that, and uh, even if they do, uh, let's assume, which I think is probably true, that all of those decisions are rendered pursuant to guidance and rules that the SSA commissioner has enforced. So are we really going to avoid all of those decisions? Well, Your Honor, a few points. Number one, there's the statute of limitations uh, and the Article III uh, limitations. There's also the fact that the SSAA is different than the FHFA. Uh, we don't think it makes a constitutional difference, but it, it has much more limited jurisdiction. It's not running multi-trillion dollar companies. And so to the extent uh, the, the court wants to try to preserve uh, the Social Security Administration, it could potentially try to do that. We don't think it should. We agree with the Mr. General, that it's unconstitutional, and that yes, its actions over the la- within the statute of limitations should be void if, if done by principle. It's a little bit odd because I mean, none of us really think that any of those decisions would be different if there were a different level of presidential supervision, do we? Well, Your Honor, I think that's right. That was Lucia, in fact. As I recall, it was precisely because uh, it wasn't thought that there would be different that a a new uh, ALJ was assigned on remand. I mean, I think uh, Lucia is a different question. It's an appointments clause question. We can come back to that. But, I mean, are you really making a good faith argument that if there were 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 at-will removal of the Social Security Administration – that these 17 million decisions would come out differently, or indeed that any of them would? Uh, Your Honor, I I understand, and and highly likely that they would not, but the same was true in Stern and Marshall. Uh, It was very unlikely that uh, the bankruptcy judge, uh, if he had had Article III protection, would have come out a different way on that state law counterclaim, and yet still... Uh, relief was provided. And likewise, in SELA law, it was very unlikely that if the president had uh, was able to fire the head of the CFPB, that that subpoena to that law firm would have come out any differently. So that's sort of a feature. In a case like this, Mr. Thompson, where we're trying to figure out the proper remedy, 
I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of equitable question, isn't it? And we're trying to figure out uh, what position you would have been in absent a constitutional violation. Why isn't that the right question? Well, I think footnote 12 of free enterprise and SELA law just last term rejected that. They said plaintiffs don't have to try to recreate a but-for world. And here, if we, it shows why. We'd have to go back to 2009 and see what would have happened if uh, Director Watt, for example, had been there throughout the entire time. And, you know, would the president have preferred to keep the money at Fannie and Freddie and spend it on affordable housing rather than uh, send it all to the Republican-controlled House of Representatives and the Treasury? So that's a but difficult mean, Mr. Thompson, that we have to do a great deal more than uh, invalidate the, 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 the Third Amendment and everything that's followed from it? I mean, why shouldn't we go back to the, 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 the first or the second? Well, Your Honor, we focused on the Third Amendment because that's the the feature of this that rearranged the capital structure. But as we made clear to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, we are perfectly content with all of these arrangements, which, as we say in the complaint, were a concrete life preserver. It's like getting a credit card with a double-digit interest rate that you can't repay the debt on. It's not debt, but you can't pay the money back. And so we would be perfectly content with it being thrown out. Justice Gorsuch? Counsel, your remedial ask is a big one and, and uh, hard, hard for us to swallow, I know. And, and I, I, I want to I focus on a couple aspects of it that, that, we've, we've, uh, that are particularly important. The, the first is that uh, once we had a new director in 2014, uh, we, we've heard a suggestion that, that you haven't complained about actions taken after 2014 in your complaint. And the only complaint has to do with the entry into the Third Amendment, which took place during the pendency of a prior director. I'd like like to understand your thoughts about that first. And second, um, whether uh, a a new constitutionally correct director that we ordain today could ratify the actions of an unconstitutional arrangement previously. Why would it have to be void? Yes, Your Honor. So on the first question, we do complain about the implementation. We are complaining about each and every one of the decisions under the network sweep by the director. Every one of these dividend payments gets declared quarterly, and none of them can be paid to the Treasury under 12 CFR 1237.12 A and B unless the director blesses those. And so we've complained in the complaint that but for each and every one of those payments, there'd be $124 billion of extra capital at the companies. Obviously, the implication of that calculation in our complaint is we're not satisfied that any of these uh, payments were made. Now, as for the court's second question with respect to ratification, we don't believe this could be ratified in large part because it's the government who's coming in and trying to justify this by saying, well, there was a death spiral. We didn't know the companies were going to do so well. Well, now we know. We know that they're thriving. Uh, in in terms of their profitability, not soundness, because all the money's being siphoned off to Treasury. Uh, But uh, we don't believe it could be ratified now, Your Honor. I I guess I don't understand that latter answer. Um, A lot of facts in there, but, but what legally, what constitutionally would prohibit the ratification? Well, when the underlying rationale uh, that the government has proffered is now, eight years later, been totally exposed to have no validity, then we don't see how 
the the government could sort of time time travel back and nunk pro tunk bless that. Uh, and I but, guess I'm asking why not. I mean, I understand that like the Federal Vacancy Reform Act says that can't be done when its terms apply. Um, but but why, why couldn't we, as some sort of uh, equitable remedial um, dodge, um, uh, do that here? Well, I think the plain language of the APA, which says that uh, the unlawful action shall be set aside, of course would do account being taken for the rule of prejudicial error. But as we've talked about Earlier today, uh, this is structural error, not harmless error. No, I, that, that really wasn't my question. Okay, okay I'm sorry. Um, it, it, fine. If you, if you have any further thoughts about the, why it couldn't be ratified, I, I welcome them. But let me just pose you one last question. And that is uh, the, the argument that, um, of course, the president could have fired the acting director because uh, the Vacancy Act would normally apply and that would permit him to do so. Well, at, at this point, the Vacancies Act did not apply because it had been more than 210 days since the Senate had rejected uh, the nominee that President Obama had sent up. And so uh, the, the FVRA just had no application at the time of the network sweep. Any reason why just that we shouldn't as a background principle assume that the president could? Uh, well, uh, one reason would be Wiener. Wiener uh, said that you look at the nature of the function of the office that's vested in the officer, and I know some might think Wiener wasn't correctly decided as an original matter, but Congress is entitled to legislate against the backdrop of this court's precedents. And, and so the Wiener uh, precedent said, here's how you can imply it. Look to the act, to the nature of the functions. It's identical, the powers of the acting director and the regulated director. And we've got the plain language of 4511A, which says thank it you. Shall, shall be. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you, and good morning, uh, Mr. Thompson. Picking up on the first part of Justice Gorsuch's questions, uh, the Solicitor General uh, in the uh, the reply brief uh, on the remedies question starts with Marbury uh, and says, since Marbury, this court has continued to subject structural constitutional claims to the general law of remedies and said courts may deny relief on such claims as a result of estoppel, de facto officer doctrine, ratification, failure to make a timely objection, uh, or the grant of a stay, uh, and then says that you've cited other cases where the court has vacated actions taken by unconstitutionally structured agencies, but the Solicitor General says those cases show only that vacator is permissible in an appropriate case, not that it is mandatory in every case, and that those principles I've just mentioned uh, can apply. Your response to that? Well, number one, they haven't invoked, for example, the de facto officer doctrine. They haven't invoked that in this court, so they've they've waived that. The only thing now, they, your, your reaction to the general uh, catalog of principles outlined by the Solicitor General. I don't believe that it applies in a case brought under the APA. Obviously, many of the older precedents uh, before 1946 and even some after weren't under the APA. But when the APA says shall set aside would do account for the rule of prejudicial error, that sweeps aside these equitable doctrines and tells this court that it shall set aside. Okay. And then uh, switching gears on the some of the arguments made by the uh Amicus, the forceful arguments made in distinguishing seal law and other precedents. I want to get your reaction to a couple of those. 
Uh, the amicus points out that seal of law used the phrase significant executive power. Uh, your response to that, was that a descriptor, a descriptive language, or or is that a necessary condition before we can say that a four-cause removal restriction on an executive officer is unconstitutional? Uh, the amicus says the latter. Well, we certainly did not understand this court to be creating a sliding scale, which would require lower courts to go and try to def- figure out how much is a significant executive of power versus not. We, we, um, so we did not understand it to be establishing a legally required standard. If it were, there's certainly significant uh, executive authority being okay, exercised. Okay, sorry, can I uh, stop Please. you there? Another distinction that the amicus uh, points out is that the four-cause language here is not the same. Right, it, it, that's true, but Wiener tells us what the term four-cause means, and it says rectitude, which is moral failing. So it's different, but in some ways it's even a higher standard than what was before the court and seal of law. Moral failing is a smaller subset uh, than neglect and malfeasance. Uh, and then the amicus says uh, on a different front that the implications for other agencies could be significant and that the court could not limit its holding here to single director independent agencies and leave those for another day, whether those follow or not would still be an open issue. Uh, do you, what's your reaction to Amicus's point that this would necessarily carry over into multi-member agencies, at least with chair designations and things like that? We, we disagree with that, Your Honor. We think we fall comfortably within the, the seal of law framework, and there would be no reason for the court to go back and uh, redo that framework. Uh, so, so we disagree with it. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Mr. Thompson, I want to just make sure I understand the uh, breadth of your argument for structural error. Let's assume that we think that the acting director was removable at will and there was no constitutional problem with the acting director. And let's further imagine that the acting director is the one who is in charge for, say, you know, up until six months ago, up until last year. And then we had a confirmed director. Does that mean that everything that happened in the course of the Third Amendment is then void as structurally invalid because at some point a constitutionally invalid officer entered the scene? Well, uh, Your Honor, if it was uh, an acting director and uh, all of our arguments are rejected about 4512F as well, uh, and so that the court concludes there was no structural problem whatsoever at the agency until just six months ago, uh, certainly we would complain about uh, the last six months' worth of payments, but uh, this is a, it's been many years that there's been uh, a, a Senate-confirmed director. No, 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 I understand that. I'm just trying to figure out how much participation by the unconstitutional officer matters. I mean, because here we didn't have constant 100% of the time of control by a, conf- uh, a confirmed director. But you're arguing, I mean, and, and I'm saying, let's assume that we think the acting director posed no problem. If the Third Amendment was entered into by the acting director with no constitutional problem, you're still saying that the participation of the confirmed director was a structural error that invalidated the Third Amendment and everything with it, correct? Well, it cer- certainly uh, it, it, it affected the implementation, yes, Your Honor. Uh, that would invalidate uh, any implementation by that uh, illegal 
uh, director, illegally constituted director. But only for those periods, so it wouldn't actually throw the whole thing out. It would just invalidate those actions taken by the confirmed director? Uh, I, I think that is a fair point uh, that uh, the director can only be, you know, their actions can be invalidated. Uh, all, you know, the, the director's actions that he took could be invalidated, but not his predecessor if what his predecessor had done was totally permissible. And so we would then have to parse through and figure out what was done by the constitutionally problematic officer and what was fine because it was done by the acting director? Well, uh, if, uh, and again, it's a big if, if the court concludes there's no problem with 4512F, uh, then uh, the court would want to look to see what did the director do, um, and uh, that stretches back to 2014, these approvals. And, and let me just, I just want to be under, certain that I understand what you're asking for. Are you asking us, say, if we agreed with you on the whole thing, do you want an injunction ordering Treasury to pay back the billions of dollars? No, 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 Your Honor. So this is very important. We're seeking two things. Number one, we're seeking prospective relief so that that, in your hypothetical, the Senate-confirmed director would be enjoined from making any future sweep dividend, approving any future sweep dividend payments. And number two, we're asking to go back and have the overpayments over and above the $18.9 billion to be treated as a pay down of principal. And that would essentially uh, deem the government paid back. Thank you. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Thompson. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, for decades, federal conservators and receivers have exercised powers under statutory schemes that are indistinguishable from the one at issue here. Yet no conservator or receiver has ever been for, before been permitted to operate its ward for the exclusive benefit of the federal government. And so I will close with the words of Mark Calabria, FHFA's current director, quote, fair and predictably applied insolvency rules allow investors and creditors to judge the risks of investing in a company. If that process can be manipulated to favor one creditor, as FHFA has favored Treasury, then there is no basis to judge what could happen if a company fails. Given the important role that government bodies play in the resolution of many financial institutions, it is essential that the performance of this role assure all stakeholders of fairness and predictability. Close quote. We agree. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Mupan. So my colleague hasn't shown any presidential insulation on either side of the Third Amendment. With respect to the acting director, he hasn't shown any reason why this court would construe the statute to create a constitutional problem rather than to avoid one. The only point he really made was to say that once the acting director was removed by the president at will, the president had limited options for who could replace him. That's not a problem about presidential removal. It's not the claim they made, and it's actually not even correct because the FVRA is available. On the other side of the transaction, uh, it's undisputed and indisputable that the Treasury Secretary uh, signed the agreement and, of course, is removable at will by the president. His only argument on that side is to say, well, maybe the contract wouldn't have happened because of other things that happened earlier. But that can't be right either because on that theory – the agency could never act going forward. Think about, for example, the CFPB. On his theory, even though this court has said that the CFPB is now removable at will, the CFPB can take no further action going forward because someone could always walk into court and say, well, the circumstances would have been different if they hadn't been subject to a removal restriction in the past. 
That's not the way this court's judicial review works. The question is what, whether the agency action that's being challenged was insulated from the president. And here, because the Secretary of the Treasury and the acting director were the ones who entered into the Third Amendment, it was. So then if we assume the Third Amendment is valid as a constitutional matter, his fallback argument is to suggest, well, the implementation of the Third Amendment at least could be challenged. And the reason that doesn't work is because once the Third Amendment is valid, the money is owed. The only question is how the money is paid. Is it paid in cash or is it paid in liquidation? I point the court to JA 179 and 180 which says, to the extent not paid pursuant to Section 2A, dividends on these shares shall accrue and shall be added to the liquidation preference, whether or not the funds legally available for the payment of such dividends and whether or not dividends are declared. A simple analogy to make the point, imagine a cabinet secretary entered into a contract to buy property and would pay for it for five years, a million dollars a year. And then imagine two years in, Congress imposed a removal restriction. No one would say that the, the last three years' worth of payments could be challenged. That money is owed as a legal matter under a valid contract, and there's no actual executive or discretionary decision being made in paying the money that's legally owed. Finally, on the anti-injunction clause, which we didn't have too much time to discuss this morning, I guess the key point I would try to make is that this wasn't a nationalization. It was a renegotiation of dividend obligations. And as all the courts of appeals before the uh, court below recognized, and as Judge uh, Strauss and Judge Bibas explained, the court shouldn't second-guess that under the anti-injunction clause. Uh, Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Nielsen, uh, this court appointed you to brief and argue the case as an amicus curiae in support of the position that the structure of the Federal Housing Finance Agency does not violate the separation of powers. You have ably discharged that responsibility, for which we are grateful. The case is submitted.